And we're back again with another episode of Cut Talk Podcast, Cut Talk Radio. Call it what you want, but just don't forget the Cut Talk. Today we have an exciting episode. We have a new guest, another new guest, and I'm going to get out the way and allow them to introduce themselves. Hey, everyone. What's going on? My name is Oak Mountain. I'm a best-selling author, philosopher, and educator born in Canada. I found Cut Talk Podcast, and I was just absolutely floored by the capacity of Raul to take some of these wild concepts and really make them practical and accessible. Um, most recently, I wrote a book called What in the Word? Uncovering the Art of Speech and the Power of Language, which inside of that, I look to discover where the source of meaning in language comes from so that we can figure out how to reclaim the power of our words to change our lives. Fascinating. And can you give us a little bit of a background on yourself? Uh, again, Oak Mountain is the name for those of you who missed it. First of all, that name in itself is just fascinating, right? Oak Mountain. Is that a name you gave yourself? It's the translation of the name that I was given at birth. Awesome. I was given three names at birth, and they're in three different languages. And mm -hmm. through a very uh, powerful reclamation ceremony that I underwent in Australia, I took this name on, and I live with this name now. So, incredible, but incredible. A, a bit of background about me, um, my, my education history is in the study of philosophy, and particularly in the philosophy of language and the mystical experiences. I also have a degree in world religions, so as I approach my discoveries and my offerings, it's trying to bridge the gap between all these different types of perspectives. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, really, really enthusiastic about being able to find the common ground. You know, we've got a lot of people in this world with different ideas, different agendas, different opinions, different backgrounds. And I truly believe that underlying all of this is a common denominator, which is our humanity. And so my journey through university and also traveling around the world to Indonesia, mm -hmm. India, Australia, Mexico, has been one to weave together the pieces of wisdom of each of these communities and offer it to a greater audience such as your own and, and the people I have the privilege of speaking to as well. Right, we appreciate you again uh, uh, giving us props and uh, coming on and having a conversation with us. But so you, you, oh, you brought up a lot of information there. I've got about a million questions for you, but let's take them one at a time. Um, so you say your education comes from philosophy and it's interesting because you know, you speak about how essentially your whole life revolves around language from the minute you're born. You know, your name is a is a translation, you know, which is in many cultures is is prevalent where the name does not represent. You know, in the U.S. centric mind, we have this idea. And again, this goes back to your ideas of, of language, excuse me, where in the U.S. centric perspective, name is John. Name is Philip. Name is, you know, whatever name is who you call. But in in some cultures name is much more than that name is the essence of of what happens at birth you know in a lot of native cultures for example uh somebody may be named after uh you know the wind at that time or or you know some some effigy or something that represents the the birth you know so it's interesting and again as you mentioned language connects those cultures it's only by being able to express what the meaning is that people are able to understand the culture so Language is definitely fascinating, and I'm glad to have you here with us. Also because, and I want to ask you this, uh, you mentioned the 
you said mystic was mystical the word that you used yes sir okay mystical and what does mystical mean to you i, I just want the people to uh, kind of understand what you mean when you say mystic because sometimes that can be jumbled in with you know things that may not be perceived as reality but I, you know what the what does mystic mean to you that's a really good question it's a very uh, interesting and apt question as well because that which is mystical mm -hmm. is often associated with not being able to be described in language right but when we look at it from a traditional point of view the mystics were the ones who got to the very boundary of perception so whereas we have collective religion, people doing regular rituals, you know, going to church on Sunday or temple and giving offerings. And it's about interacting with community. It's about interacting with a building or a pastor or a leader of sorts. The mystics say in a lot of these traditions that the pathway to the divine is actually within our own consciousness. Right. And so that which is mystical is, at least in my understanding and my experience, that which is most powerfully divine inside of ourselves, the, the element or essence of God, if you want to call it this, that's accessible within our own souls. Right, yeah. And, and that's interesting because, you know, the essence, again, the essence of the human, you know, the, the mystic, a lot of this is actually in conversation today uh, for anybody out there who may be listening. Uh, who's interested in history and, uh, you know, things that, you know, undiscovered history, things of that nature, which we'll probably tap into a little bit later. Uh, there's a series on Netflix where it's by Randall Carlson. He goes and he kind of goes over uh, ancient, mystic, sacred grounds that have been visited already. And he goes with a new perspective of tr an open mind. And, again, this is um, one thing that we try and... Uh, stress to people is that it's, it's important to have an open mind but you also have to you know know what you're believing you know don't just believe anything but also you know don't be quick to shut people out either you know you got to hear them out and then if it's crazy then it's crazy okay but a lot of this stuff again this is back science go ahead check it out on um uh graham hancock randall carlson check it out on netflix uh ancient ancient uh architecture so something like that you guys will see it on netflix but essentially, the, you know, what I'm trying to say here is that they go back to these places like Egypt, for example, and they'll, they'll talk about the pyramids. You know, people kind of give up on the theory of Egypt. Okay, it was people with slaves and they built it with man labor over time. But then they bring up this story and they say, wait, wait, hold on. Maybe there might be something more mystic, more sacred, you know, some, uh, some function of language, as you say, some, some tapping into the essence of of sound, some tapping into, and I know this kind of sounds crazy to some people, but it's really physics, you know, at its core. And a lot of the times, science and mysticism are separated as fact and fiction, but they can be intertwined as well. And this is something that people are coming to an understanding to, especially today, is that, okay, maybe those old cultures where we thought those rituals that they were doing were just silly crazy people doing pointless things was actually humans tapping into some either again essence or some technology that we have internally you know instead of externally and language is actually uh can be perceived as a technology by humans because although it is not external it is using the system of a human, you know, in order to translate, you know, I, if I hit my toe, 
you don't know if I'm in pain unless I scream and I say, ah, I hit my toe. You know, now you're like, okay, now I get it. He's, he's pain. You know, he's in pain. You know, if you see me cry, he's sad. You know, body language. And, you know, these different things are, uh, you know, all things that I'm sure you have your own perspective on. And uh, I'm sure I've ran it long enough. But I just kind of wanted to set the stage to let people know what our common ground is and what, what I see. And I appreciate it. So can you let us know, you know, I know I kind of went on a stint there. But just what do you, what's your perspective is on all that and how you feel language? Yeah, man, you, you hit some really, really strong and powerful points, particularly when you said it's all physics, because at the very core, the type of science that you're drawing our attention to when you're saying, okay, maybe, maybe there was something else going on with the pyramids. Maybe these other ancient sites and these ancient wisdoms knew something we didn't. Right. I like to believe, based on my exposure to things like the ancient secret of the flower of life, Graham Hancock's work, Forbidden Knowledge, which you, you brought up before as well, uh, Mr. Carlson, is the science of cymatics, C-Y-M, cymatics. And this science is the science of waves. And so this crosses over in a really interesting way with the pyramids and also with language. Because what cymatics shows us, and the ancient Egyptians knew this, is that shape, geometry, 3D geometry, is an expression of vibration. Mm. So essentially, all sound has shape. Right. So if we make a more a powerful enough sound in the right kind of container with the right kind of amplitude, we will be able to affect matter. Okay. Maybe that's how they moved the pyramid blocks. We don't know. Maybe that's how they were able to transcend to these other altered states of consciousness. We don't know. But where this comes into play with language is that the very same functions, the same interactions that are making the harmony in, say, a piano chord right. or in this vibrational technology that we see, even ultrasound technology or acoustic technology, um, high-level military acoustic technology as an example, that underlies language. And so we have not only the meaning that you were talking about, like, okay, I'm in pain because I screamed because I slammed my toe. Mm -hmm. There's the meaning that's coming out in sound, but there's also the energy of the sound itself that is this vehicle of transformation, this vehicle of information in and of itself. Right. And to, to carry along with the uh, Egyptian theme, some people believe that ancient Egyptian, the language itself, was what is known as a perfect language. That mm. the sounds itself, like if I said to you, okay, I'm looking at a tree right now, but right. what is tree? It's a four letter word but it doesn't mean any one tree. We've got, you know, fir trees, pine trees, apple trees, and they're all different. But the word tree is this like signpost, this symbol that's mm. abstract. It sits only in the mind and we've all agreed as a group that this word means this type of plant. What would happen if we had a word that actually contained the living vibration of the object itself. That idea 
is what underlies a perfected language, which is why some theorize that the Egyptians had a deep and lived knowledge of the world because it was not separate from how they spoke. I have a question really quick. I don't mean to interrupt, but I just brought something up and I have to ask you before I lose it. Um, so, you know, that makes me think because, you know, you're speaking about this and, you know, the perfect and I, I it's kind of like a barcode that's attached to an item, right? Where it's like, you know, you scan that barcode and it brings you to that item. Is it possible to use sound or, I mean, I'm sure this, I'm not, you know, I, I don't mean to put you on the spot, if you, you know, but this is just something that comes up in my mind. Or it's like, is it possible to create a sound that invokes itself and manifests it as, as a thought to where you can manipulate what people think by sound? You know, and, and, and again, it, it kind of coincides with what you're saying about the feeling of the word. You know, when you're when you're at a scary movie and you hear the dun or the dun you know, you hear the, the tone of the sound evokes an emotion in you. But how about evoking, yeah, yeah. you know, and it also, I guess, simultaneously, that could be considered a thought of some sort. But, you know, it's just interesting to think because uh, there, there's always conversations about, oh, how ex how extensive was the knowledge of ancient cultures, really? Because all we have is pictures or maybe some writing and anybody who can write a sentence, you know, is that's a pretty standard measure of intelligence, but there's no real, like, you know, there's no way to measure it besides, like in ancient Egypt, you can measure their their success by oh they built these ancient pyramids, so they must have had some technology. So that's where a lot of that comes from, you know, architecture things like that. And there's also conversations of you know, a lot of mental, you know, whether it be uh, something that maybe co connected to some drug ceremony or some you know hallucination of seeing gods and things like that. Um, but the culture is fascinating, and that that's why it, it begs me that question of, do you think there's some correlation possibly between, uh, and again, this may sound crazy to some people, but some, not mind control, but let's say somebody is depressed, right? Is there, is there some way to have a session with them where you're, like, shooting this wave of sound, specific wave of sound that kind of clears their mind of some thought, you know, the same way white white noise helps people sleep or something like that? Absolutely. And we have science that validates this as well. I think we have to just pick apart a little bit the idea. And if we expand our understanding of it, then we will be able to see how this works. So the, the question that you asked is, is it capable to, say, influence or introduce an idea or a thought into someone's mind or maybe clear it with sound? Well, if we recognize we say, okay, a thought is something that happens inside of awareness. That awareness or consciousness is not the same as a thought because we are aware of the thought. Okay, so these are two different things. We know for sure and absolutely for certain that we can influence brain states and conscious experience through sound. And one of the ways that we can do this, that anyone listening can do this, is through a technology called binaural beats, which maybe you've heard of. What that is essentially is that you would take one frequency and put it in one ear, mm -hmm. and you would take a different frequency and put it in through the other. And the difference in cycles per second in Hertz is actually generated by the brain. 
So a third frequency is generated by the brain because of the difference between these two. Fascinating. Okay, fascinating indeed. Now let's take it one step further. We know that brainwave states are associated with different perceptual experiences in consciousness. What does this mean in simple terms? Well, we can measure that your brain is oscillating at say two cycles to four cycles a second when you're in deep sleep, somewhere between four to seven when you're coming out of sleep and into a sort of alpha wave state, creative, but not really thinking. And then anything above say 10 to 40 is more of a thought driven state. Well, we can then induce those states with sound. So to answer your secondary question about depression and, and whether or not we can sort of uplift someone with sound, well, we know technologically and scientifically that we can change someone's brain wave patterns using frequency, at least piping in through two ears. But we also have a lot of indigenous knowledge that says that sound itself is a medicine. And so when we look to traditions like, say, the Shabibo tradition of the ayahuascaros that come out of Peru, mm. they use something called ikaros, which are essentially the musical expression of the ayahuasca medicine. And they're one in the same. So it's not like, you know, we'll take the medicine and then someone's got some tunes to play. Yeah. It's <laughs> yeah. that the medicine is actually in more than one piece. It's the two plants that are brewed and it's the songs that are sung by the shaman himself. And it's, it's a really hard thing to explain for someone who hasn't experienced it. But in my experience with ayahuasca, as soon as the Ikaro begins, the medicine inside my body came alive like nothing I've ever experienced. And mm. so I was, it was validated for me in that moment that sound has the ability not only to transform the mind, but to interact with substance in my body, not just my brain, but something completely beyond my body. Really powerful experience. Yeah, and I can relate to, um, I can relate to, you know, what you're saying about having experiences where, uh, again, unexplainable or seemingly unexplainable and it's interesting how you say, you know, ayahuasca in the form of sound, uh, you know, and then there's this idea also of the, you know, Einstein's famous E equals MC squared equation, you know, where energy under the right conditions can basically convert into mass and vice versa, mass can convert into energy. So you can have, you know, it's as crazy as it sounds, it's actually, you know, under with that presupposition, you can have the mass, you know, the matter, you can have ayahuasca and mass be converted into an energy form and then be, you know, experienced through the form of an energy, which again, what you ingest through food or through eating or can be maybe one process. However, when you ingest the energetic frequency of something, it may, again, like, like a radio tuning through channels, it may put your brain onto some frequency that you don't get to experience on a normal day you know you don't get to your everyday channel isn't that channel but you know if you do this if you take this you know it tunes you into that channel and you know that idea there is is important to me because i feel like and i think it should be important to other people because uh it just it just kind of explains how multi-dimensional the universe we live in really is and how um you know i, I want to get your opinion actually right now because i'm going to go into it of 
no you know just with what we've said so far and you know speaking about frequencies and things like that in some ways it ties into string theory and string theory is again the theory of uh, vibrating strings which how you were explaining create if vibrating in the right way create different outcomes uh, a certain vibration may create the outcome of, of a proton another vibration may create a neutron so it's just you know the universe expressing itself in different ways if you will is a the very simple way to put it but it's actually a complex theory if you guys should look at but uh, with that being said it that that further ties into the idea of consciousness and determinism and free will and you know you being a philosopher I just want to know what your opinion is on that before we dive into some more philosophical conversation I want to ask you about that how do you feel about determinism and uh, free will and uh, do you pick a side or do you feel that uh, you know I don't know go ahead what, what's your opinion on that yeah big question man that's a good one as far as I understand it we as human beings are an expression of the very same thing that makes this entire universe. So if we look and we can say that there is at least some sort of order to the universe, some sort of cause and effect, very clear and defined, maybe determined relationship, then so too we would say, or that it would be reasonable to say, there are elements of our humanity that are also determined. Mm. Likewise, it appears to be true from my perspective that there is some degree of chaos in the world as well, at least from the human perspective on this planet embodied here. And this is the, the antithesis to order. It's the random to the perfectly ordered. And this randomness, rather than thinking about chaos from the mythical sense that it is something like Satan or evil, if we transform this idea of chaos as, as an idea of potentiality, it's an undefined quality. And if there is a lack of definition or there's something like potential energy that we know exists within physics, then that means that there are multiple ways that something could become made manifest. So if we're working with potential and we're working with order, then it's essentially, we have free will within a particular container. I have the will to speak, the will to move my mind, to move my body, and to conduct myself by my own volition, my own will. I do not have the will to control your mind or control your body or to make the earth split in two by the sheer power of my will. So it's like there's very clearly bounds to it and things that I have no control over, which says to me that there's elements that are determined, maybe fated. And yet there are things that I do have control over. One thing that I would put in there is that when you're talking about string theory or cymatics or how vibration influences the universe, we have to always remember that our being, you want to call it a soul, you want to call it spirit, whatever you want to call it, that pure essence of consciousness that we are is an eminent phenomenon. That means that it is putting waves out into the universe as well as taking information in. And so if we know that it's putting information out, we can deduce that we are influential 
And so in that case, our understanding of influence is what I believe can and ought to inform how we use our will. Because it's not possible for us to not be influential. Everything we say and do is going to have an impact on the world. So recognizing this, we go, ah, how should I be behaving then if I'm going to have an influence one way or the other? Right, yeah. Yeah, and then you have the counter attitude, which is like, oh, everything I do doesn't matter, so it doesn't matter anyways. You know, there's like those two sides of the coins, you know, it's like the optimist and the pessimist. Interesting. Uh, yeah, that, that perspective is, is kind of weak, in my opinion, at least philosophically. It's, it's kind of a lazy argument. Because when we look at the idea of meaning itself, we can bring this back to the idea of language. Meaning is a linguistic phenomenon, at least in part, right? Mm. Our words reference something, and that's the mm. meaning that they have. Mm. Okay, well, where do they get this meaning from? Right. It turns out, at least from my research and, and the uh, scholars that I've been reading that informed the book that I wrote, is that life itself, all of the life on the planet, all of this natural happening of the universe is the root for meaning in language. Let's return to the tree example, right? That's interesting. If there was no trees, mm -hmm. I could say to you tree and you'd be like, that's a sound. Right. Thanks buddy, what does that mean, right? right. But because there is something alive, something material, something manifest, we are now anchoring our sound, anchoring our idea in something tangible and real. And so when someone says life has no meaning, the meaning of all life comes from the fact that it exists itself. And so the relationship that we develop as humans with the meaning is a direct reflection of our own relationship to our life and life at large. So when I hear people say, oh, life has no meaning, I go, are you li living a meaningful life? Are you right. living meaninglessly? What conducts your actions? How do you right. feel and believe about yourself? It can be very, very interesting to inquire in that direction. Right, it's even, it's fascinating though, huh? Because even hearing a person say that their life has no meaning in itself is a painful thing to hear sometimes. Because, again, you're resonating with the life essence. Like, your life, your heart is beating, your brain is flowing. Like, what, what, how are you not finding meaning in that itself? You know, but it's, it's hard, you know. And I think, I think a lot of that does come from the, the daily life and the daily struggles, which is something that a lot of the people and a lot of our listeners relate to is the idea of, uh, you know, sometimes you just kind of become unconscious of your daily routine because it's become so autonomous and so pretty much, uh, redundant to you you know you're only doing it because you need to make money to pay bills and your your life meaning becomes that I be, you become a machine essentially for the economy as a human you become a part of a machine and you know you just become one piece of a larger system and then you lose your your individuality from that and you real, you start to look at yourself as uh what 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 do you have to offer instead of what potential do you have you know, mm. uh, which is kind of similar, but you know, what I mean is that people uh, gauge their value off of how much money they can make per hour versus what what they can create from, you know, what they've been giving with their body and so on mind. Which again, you know, I understand that not everybody relates to. And you also answered a question right there 
uh, which I was going to ask you, or you started to, and, and, you know, so I'm going to ask you now. Again, the origin, as a philosopher, you know, you brought up some Descartesian ideas right there, some Descartes ideas, you know, some Cartesian, I'm not sure, I'm not a, I'm not a philosopher expert, so, you know, don't kill me if I get some things wrong, but at the same time, you know, I, I took a philosophy 101 class once upon a time, and, you know, I think the first week was Descartes, and to be, and, and you know, to be, not to be, and uh, I think, therefore, I am, and all that good stuff, and I think that I think, therefore, I am idea is kind of what you were tapping into right there with the idea that you know you can't come like you know this is one of the things they say in philosophy or at least my teacher told me she's like try to come up with a color that you've never seen before you can't do it right yeah because you haven't you've never seen it so how are you going to come up with the color oh no i came up with a new shade of blue nope that already exists you've seen it somewhere that's why you're imagining it you know so it's like you know and then the same idea applies to dreams where it's like you might have some crazy surrealism art fantasy dream but every idea concept of that dream is going to come from some reality right it's gonna be like you know it doesn't matter if you're dreaming about some you know crazy wonderland everything in that wonderland is gonna be it's gonna have some tie to your reality and your conscious mind and things you've experienced so again the human experience in the moment seems to be somewhat of a reflection of what you've already experienced and and you know we we spoke a little bit before the podcast um and we talked about you know uh dr peters and how she uh you know fascinating work for those of you who uh are listening to the podcast episode 32 with Megan Peters a fascinating episode and in that episode we also kind of tapped into that idea of conscious versus unconscious thought and um the origin of language sort of and you know but right now that I have you and you're more uh, you've probably spent more time thinking about language again you brought up the idea of unconscious of thought of language excuse me being not something learned but rather something that was invested within humans you know, it's kind of just something that we've always had. And, uh, you know, and that's interesting. That's interesting to, to think about because oftentimes, you know, not so much now. They don't really make caveman movies now for some reason. But I don't know. I remember growing up, we used to see a lot of, like, old caveman movies and things like that. And you would just, like, you know, the way they portray a caveman is just some crazy guy, you know, with a stick. And he's like, mm, mm, like grunting, you know. They're just like kind of grunting around like dopes, you know, and it's just like, oh, yeah, that they were dumber back then. That's just what like we kind of accepted it. Yeah. So they didn't talk. They grunted. Is there any truth to that? Or do you think there was an ancient language? Great question. And that actually is delved into in great depth in the book, The Ascent of Humanity by Charles Eisenstein. And a part of that book, he talks about one theory of how we develop language. And so when you're talking about the grunts, you're actually pretty close to his idea, uh, which is kind of funny because we see it in popular movies, right? Just yeah. tearing a big stick around. Essentially, we can think about language, if we roll it back from English and we go all the way back to, say, a proto-language, essentially what we're working with is vocalizations that are associated or extensions of rather emotions. So emotional vocalizations. Mm. Let's think of an example here. Let's say you and I we're, we're cave brothers, right? <laughs> Major storm coming in. We got hail and wind tree branches are breaking thunders going off. Right. Yeah. And, uh, and I'm feeling a little scared, right? Mm -hmm. Let's say I make a particular sound, a very, it's unique enough a fearful sound when the thunder hits 
Next time, when it's sunny, if I repeat that sound to you, you'll remember me saying it in the presence of this thunder and lightning, and you'll know that I'm referring to that event, the emotion, specifically the event uh, itself tied to that emotion. And so the idea is that we have natural vocalizations that are extensions of our emotions. You mentioned one earlier, stubbing your toe, ah, right? That hurts like shit, I don't like it. Okay, so that's an extension. Now what happens if I make a specific sound that is associated not just with an emotion, but with an emotion that comes around only during a specific experience? Mm. Well, now I can generate the idea of that specific experience in your brain by making that same sound. Wow. Okay, now we've moved from caveman grunts into symbolic thought. We have the idea to hold, not the idea rather, the capacity to hold an idea of something that is not immediately present and to recall it using an acoustic symbol. It's not a word because it's still a sort of vocalization or a grunt, but we're able to make reference to something that was in the past and might come in the future. And so you can see from swinging clubs, being scared of thunder in a cave, mm -hmm. how we can slowly work our way into associating sound with objects or phenomenon. The next step is when we started illustrating. So not only do I have a sound for thunder, but if I make this sound and I draw like a lightning bolt in ash on the side of a cave wall, and I make that same sound and I point, now the next time I make that symbol, you can go, oh, I know what he's talking about. And then we start to transfer again. We've transferred the fear that was associated with the sound of thunder to a emotional vocalization. And then that same meaning from the emotional vocalization onto an image outside of our body. And it's, you can see that now we're, we're getting a little bit farther away, right? More sophisticated, more intelligent, more complex. Um, and that's where we move into the realm of logography and iconography using pictures to represent ideas. Uh, there's a whole history we could, I mean, I could walk you roughly all the way to English from there, but I think that, that sort of drives at the answer of your question. No, yeah, and you, again, you're like a psychic, man, you answer questions right before I'm about to ask them, but yeah, so, <laughs> you, so again, I was gonna bring up that idea of cave paintings, you know, because you, you, can, you can, and this is, again, something that, that uh, is fascinating because much like language, there's, you know, and uh, this is something that people kind of overlook or don't think about too much, but ancient civilizations, as as unique and as different as they are, a lot of the most interesting things is the similarities, like like how, well, again, developing language. Like, you know, some, some ancient cultures spoke in clicks and tongues. Some used, again, like you mentioned, sound, more sound-based languages of of giving alerts rather than you know expressing full ideas it's more of uh as long as we can figure out how to go get food and come back we don't need too many words you know if we if our language is extensive enough that we can go kill a bull and bring it back to the village then what more do we need to speak about you know and then you know and then you see more advanced civilizations where you know mayan for example where their wonder goes so 
far that they they needed to connect not only with the people around them but with the with space even as an ancient civilization they felt some calling if you will to the cosmos so like that's interesting you know in itself but again the similarities going back of language of uh portrayal of uh, illustrations on the wall uh, Native Americans showing themselves in groups mm -hmm. hunting buffaloes uh, ancient Egyptians uh, painting hieroglyphs of uh, ceremonies things like that you know but it's all similar and what do you think as a philosopher you know I'm sure you've thought about this what do you think inspired that move into into images was it and and I know this may sound uh, may sound like a dumb casual theory but just you think some people just their language manifested in drawing or or something like that or how did, what do you think led to that move from it because that's a big jump you know from making sounds to illustrating I mean there's a big missing link right there it seems you know you don't just go from you know association of sounds and okay let me come up with this complex drawing of describing the exact moment you know mm -hmm. totally there's a, a couple ways we could look into this one thing that might fill that gap is the idea of story. Mm. So you mentioned a little bit about, you know, if, if our language is comprehensive enough for us to go make a successful hunt and come back, we don't need to be talking about whose feet are bigger, right? Like <laughs> right, we have right. the yeah. things that are necessary and yeah. then everything else. We have enough words. Well, it's, it is the case that in some indigenous tribes that there's actually a mimicry between animal sounds, say bird calls or things like this, that were taken into the language. So let's say if there's a, a very common bird that makes a warning sound whenever there's a jaguar around, that people would literally mimic that as a warning call to their other tribes members. Wow, so it's a really interesting way that there's, there's this interconnected exchange of information between living world, like I was talking about the source of meaning, and the actual spoken language. and it wouldn't be too hard to imagine if you were sitting around a fire in some soft dirt, sketching out something that you saw with your finger. You know, this is a, a fairly human thing to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We also know, like if we recognize that the visualization as a, a piece to do, that somewhere along the line, we were able to encode this set of sounds in a way that was complex enough to pass on information intergenerationally. Mm. So if you imagine we all lived within, you know, a hundred mile radius, this is where we all, you know, my grandfather's grandfather's grandfather was <laughs> yeah. born in this space, yeah. that kind of thing. The history of the land, the interaction of the plants, the seasonal movement of right. the animals, right. the, the medicines available, would start to be known, learned, and necessarily passed on. But we're not gonna be passing on an encyclopedia, so how do we pass on this information? Well, we, we anthropomorphize, we start to make these, the characters of our stories, these plants and animals, come alive in a way that we can understand their nature. And so, to tie this all the way back to your first question is, how the hell did we get to painting cave walls? It's my theory anyways, not being an anthropologist of any sort, that that artistry is an extension of story. It's a way that we, when 
maybe were nomadic or somebody died, that we could actually encode the stories that kept our people alive into something that was more enduring than a body. We were able to externalize it and put it onto a wall to be able to communicate. It's almost like a, a whiteboard, you know, you could mm -hmm. point and, and work your way through the story using images that would land even more deeply. That's the theory that I have anyways, that it was a, a story fortifying tool. Yeah, and you know what, that's, I mean, that's just, you know, it's, it's fascinating how, how, you know, the way you, you say it, um, it brings up two thoughts in my mind. Number one, you know, when you put it like that, it makes perfect sense that, of course, you know, if you're only working within a hundred mile radius for 150 years, it's much easier to create a complete accurate history, you know, versus, uh, you know, let's take the earth, for example, right? There's countless examples of, of uh, torn history where we don't even know what really happened. Or, or, of course, you know, the popular historical theme of the winner tells history, the loser gets forgotten, you know? So, you know, there's so much history that's incomplete. But, of course, if you have a 100-mile radius, you know, it makes perfect sense that you're able to capture the history of the land to almost a perfect, you know, a perfect caliber, if you will, if you're able to pass on stories at such a successful rate. And then within that, pass on intelligence, pass on technique to be developed on, which would eventually, you know, snowball into evolution and, you know, more, into, you know, and just wisdom being passed on. And, you know, and it makes sense when you put it like that, how that could, you know, those that idea of hunter gatherer moving around in groups, you know, we stay in this land until we've essentially gotten all we can. Then we move on to the next space, learn that space. But you know, I mean, it just makes perfect sense when you put it like that. And, and you know, it's interesting and it's a very fascinating theory and it definitely answers my question. But, you know, I mean, it's just it's just one of those things where, you know, uh, there's a fear that the answer may come way later in, in the future or that we might never get the answer because of just the way the, the earth is. But but it's it's interesting to wonder how what the first human who decided to like, you know, we I have these crazy thoughts in my head. Maybe if I. Maybe if I put my finger through the dirt in a certain way, I can almost copy the image in my head to the ground, you know. And then once that discovery was made, I imagined that we started to evolve at a much faster rate. Because now, now you no longer have to create words to to express what you mean. You just show them a picture, and a buffalo, a picture, a picture of a buffalo is a buffalo, no matter what language you speak. You see the buffalo, you know the buffalo. It doesn't matter if you call it buffalo, cow, chicken you know moo sheep whatever you want to call it you know it's about it's what it is you know and that and that capturing that i think is one of the biggest achievements that humans have have actually done you know and, and the more i speak to you the more i realize how much of a of an actual achievement humans made by just you know coming up with such a complex language and uh and i want to ask you uh again what you think on why the language that we speak today is what stuck is there any, I mean, because, you know, again, the number one could have been the number two, the number two could have been the number 100, we could have been counting like maniacs, right? But we seemingly created a flowing language that makes 100% sense to us. Is that something that we got conditioned to accept? Or is that something that, again, like you mentioned, we found somewhat of our, uh, quote unquote, perfect language, if you will? I think that why it is that English is the most prolific. I wouldn't say it's the most spoken in terms of population because 
right. uh, Hindi or Mandarin, there's more speakers of those languages than there is of English, but it's become the universal maybe language of business, language of media. Right. A lot of that has to do with uh, colonialism, mm. for sure. You know, the expansion of the British Empire. We see one of the top five languages in the world, perhaps. I'm not sure exactly, so I won't be entirely accurate in this, but yeah. is Spanish as well, yeah. another huge colonial power. Mm -hmm. And so it's, I don't think that the popularity of English has anything to do with its efficacy or its um, value as a language. Right. In fact, I think it's one of the most distorted languages that exist <laughs> on earth today. Yeah. And there's a lot of reasons for that, in fact. Um, but yeah, it's, I don't think it's popular because it's the best one we could be using. That's for damn sure. Yeah, no, that's it. I mean, that's interesting. I didn't even really think of a, about that before I asked the question. But yeah, I mean, of course, right? Whoever, yep. you know, all those English settlers going around the country, I mean, going around different countries, excuse me, different continents, you know, and basically, you know, the imperialist era, you know, the world where people were taking over. And I think that's how religion also spread uh yep. in the way that it did was you know the missions you know conquering and things like that um let's see let's see let me let me run back here so uh just to go back to uh the ancient you know the mystic if you will you know uh what is your thought on untapped uh history and are there any uh because i you know i'm always looking to learn and i'm sure the people listening would love to learn are there any cultures that you come across in your studies or languages or things like that that st stand out as particularly interesting? In terms of their relationship to language? Uh, yeah, maybe they had an interesting language, maybe the way they spoke the language, or just anything really that you feel that is, is interesting. I just would like to know since, I, you know, since you're, you probably look yeah. at these. <laughs> a fair few. I, there's a lot of different traditions that interest me for different reasons. Mm -hmm. I think one of the ones that was most immediately interesting to me um, was the ancient Indian civilization. So the Indus Valley, the, the proto-yogic of India, and particularly not just the proto-yogic, but also that which came from the Vedas, which are the oldest yogic texts of India and the Upanishads thereafter. What I found so fascinating, and a lot of people are now discovering this, yoga is very popular, mystical yogic traditions are very popular here in the West as well, mm -hmm. is that fundamentally they understood the power of vibration and they understood the power of sound. There was no question or, or trying to hide it away. You can go into any, any tradition or, or let's say and get any texts from Raja Yoga or Ashtanga Yoga yogic philosophers will write about the power of sound mm -hmm. and it comes out in the practices of mantras or jap mantra where you go around on your prayer beads and you say sacred words over and over and over again or in the practice of kirtan which is singing those words over and over again right. sanskrit like i mentioned about ancient egyptian is also considered to be a perfected language mm -hmm. and so because it's understood to be perfected it's reasoned that when we repeat these mantras inside of ourselves, we actually transform our mind and transform our body. And I was so drawn to that tradition because they were so upfront about it. They're like, you can access conscious power by chanting mantra. It's like, oh, wow, the church tried to hide this and here it is, we can see it. Another group of traditions, I would say that 
that calls me quite closely would be the indigenous of Canada, particularly East, the Mi'kmaq, mm -hmm. and the the stories, the like we were talking about before, the capacity for wisdom, not only about the land, but of human nature, of the human heart and the human mind to be passed on generation to generation. Right. I feel like, like you mentioned, we we're very impoverished when it comes to deep wisdom in the US and in Canada and in the Western world at large that knowing that there are or could be individuals out there who still carry stories that are thousands of years old really excites me because I go, well, what is it that they knew that I don't? Mm. You know, I yearn for this wisdom. I yearn for this knowledge. So that's another place that I find very stimulating. That's interesting. That's awesome. So. You know, uh, when you were mentioning a little bit about the, the Hindis and the yogis and all that, the, uh, one of the things that came to my mind is the idea of, you know how they have, uh, what are they called, snake charmers, where they play the flutes to calm the cobras? Uh, would that be considered some? Because, you know, I mean, it is pretty interesting, right, that they play an instrument and it's, I mean, I'm not sure what's really going on, but it seems that, that you know, the snakes are not attacking. You know, maybe I'm misunderstanding that, but uh, did you look into that at all and what, the theories behind that I don't have a great deal of information on it but uh -huh. what I do know is that those cobras are typically raised by that individual from a very young age and so they're habituated to the presence of the music and to move in line with the flute itself so there's maybe a popular idea that it's the sound itself that's soothing the wild beast <laughs> yeah. um, but I think that that yeah. underlying that, that there's actually just a habituation, like you could train a cat or a dog. and Like we are, gotcha. Gotcha. as animals, right, creatures of habit. So now that being said, if you didn't play the flute, you'd have to say, sir, can you not play your flute and see if the cobra attacks you? That would be an interesting, <laughs> yeah, yeah. interesting right, question. Not but, down, huh? Yeah, no, thank you. Yeah, oh, no, 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 it's funny. I was wondering, you know, because you, know, you never know sometimes. You know, sounds is just such an interesting thing and, and language itself, you know. Um. Okay, so uh, I guess we're getting kind of towards the end here. Uh, but before, and I wanna and I want you to uh, shout out your book and everything. But before we do all that, uh, I have one question. I guess it just came up into my mind about um, about the idea of uh, uh, translating. Like, let's say, uh, well, I guess I don't know. If this would be an appropriate question, but just what you think about how dolphins and like other mammals have like some resonance with how they speak and things like that and their, their languages. Have you looked into animal languages at all? Yeah, that's um, one area that I, I haven't written on, but I do find particularly fascinating. Mm. I know that corvids, which is the sort of group of birds that include crows, blue jays, cardinals, and magpies, they are very vocal and can have up to 2,000 unique vocalizations. Some studies suggest that I believe it's magpies can actually recognize up to 100, maybe 200 faces and will actually link unique sounds to those faces. So they give people names. And it's just such a fascinating idea because wow, they were realizing that this, I think it was in Australia that I heard this because they have a lot of magpies there as well, that if you piss off the magpies they'll remember you oh, and no. they will they'll they'll dive bomb you like they, they're like we know who you are and we will tell our friends who you are and we're gonna come and and stir some shit up that's crazy so that's a really interesting piece 
The dolphin thing that you brought up is also quite fascinating for, in two ways. One, because they do use echolocation. They work and see, I use see, I'll put air quotes, I'll say that because we're audio only here, see with sound in some way. And there's a website called speakdolphin.com where they actually were able to use a technology that received the vibration of a dolphin echolocating at a human and to decode the acoustic information into an image and see what the dolphin was seeing. And I include this in my book as well. And the image is remarkable, man. It's literally the outline of a diver. You can see how sound responds to shape and then is fed back into the mind. So on the one hand, they're obviously an already tuned in, just mm -hmm. like bats too, using echolocation, to the power of sound to inform us about the environment. And then we think, what then are they able to do when they apply whatever conscious mind they have to their vocalizations over great distances? Mm. We know that ocean mammals like dolphins and whales, that their calls actually carry like miles and miles and miles and miles. They can be heard a really long ways away. And so you think, what is it that they're communicating? Well, we know at least for orcas, also known as killer whales, that they will teach each other hunting techniques. We realized this through um, a piece of research, I think this was done uh, within the last 20 years at least, where a pod of orcas was using a particular hunting technique to kill seals. It had to do with uh, water, I believe, like blowing water to destabilize uh, icebergs to tip off the seals, oh, something I like this. I've seen a video like that, yeah. Right. So we see the videos now, but that wasn't always a thing. Mm. A certain pod learned how to do it. And then as they migrated, they taught different pods. And soon enough, all these different whales were doing this same hunting technique. And so we know because of that, that at some level, either through direct demonstration, say body language, mm. repetition, right, or through actual acoustics, Wow. Um, say like they're speaking to one another, right. they're able to transfer information. So there is some some reasons for us to believe that animals are communicating vocally and non-vocally. Right, and that also gives some indication that there's universal universality to whatever communication channel they're using, right? Where uh, essentially it can be learned by all whales or all orcas, all of the same species, uh, mm -hmm. which again... It's interesting, right? Because uh, I mean, uh, I'm gonna, you know, I'm not gonna go on too long here because we're already towards the end, and I don't want to take up too much time. But again, you know, that can even go all the way down to genetics, you know, because uh, the human genome is a whole other, you know, fascination of, you know, um, what what exactly does it mean, you know, what exactly are genetics, you know? Of course, you you input a certain code, and you out comes a human with certain traits, but you know, what What are the codes that we don't know? You know, what are some of the pieces of code in there in that DNA strand that we don't understand? You know, which is, um, or maybe that we might not see, you know, which is something that is also, sight is also important to language because what, the, what you experience through visually is the way you'll communicate it, you know, vocally or through illustration. You'll just essentially like a camera be printing out what your mind interprets. So it's interesting. 
Yeah, but, yeah. Uh, you know, uh, again, you know, I mean, this has been an awesome conversation. But uh, oh, wait, actually, hold on, I'm getting ahead of myself. My bad. Let me do. We have these last eight questions. Always ask the eight questions at the end. So I gotta ask you. Um, and uh, yeah, let's start with this. Uh, let me pull these up real quick. And then after the eight questions, you know, we'll, we'll uh, we can tell them a little bit about the book and everything. And then, you know, because I'm sure people at this point. Uh, if you're anything like me, you're probably your mind's probably exploded a few times during this uh, podcast. So hopefully everything is good. But yeah, let's start with the first question here. So the first question is, uh, Oak Mountain, what inspires you to do what you do? And what I mean by that is, what inspires you to uh, either pursue what you're pursuing in terms of study, in terms of passion, or just what gets you out of bed every day in the morning? Mm. I'm inspired to give back into this world as best I can the glory and grace that I've received that I call my life. I believe that every day is an incredible gift and I treat it as such and I believe that the responsibility that I have with this gift is to give forth back into the world to my friends, to my family and to the greater community at large. Awesome. Uh Next question, do you have any advice for others? And this could be people who are maybe looking into what you're looking into, studying what you're studying, or just general advice for anybody who may be listening to this. Mm. One of the most powerful things that we can do to reclaim the power of our voice and sound is to treat ourselves like someone that we would want to listen to. Mm. And when we pay close attention to how we speak, we'll actually start to discover some of the ways that we might be keeping ourselves held back or discover certain truths about ourselves. So we can open this treasure trove of self-knowledge by listening carefully to how we speak and how we think. Powerful message by Oak Mountain. Uh, can you tell us about a time or the first time rather when you felt accomplished in your life this could be whether some uh, achievement uh, you know some academic achievement a personal achievement just the first time that you recall in your life where you felt the sense of I got it done I did that you know true accomplishment <laughs> the very first time I can recall mm -hmm. I was this is nothing to do with language I was 13 years old I was participating in a track and field competition playing i was doing discus just like throwing the discs right and uh, i placed first so that's that's my earliest accomplishment that i remember you know i have a question you know uh, just to piggyback off of that one uh, yeah man what because you know some people don't get to experience moments like that so i want to hear mm. from your perspective if you can remember because you know i know it's probably been a while but um what do you think that feeling did to you when you first felt it? What did it give you hope? Like, did it inspire you? Did it let you know that, okay, if I put my mind to something, I can do it? Or what was the feeling? Do you remember? Yeah, that was one of the first times I ever won anything in terms of sports. And so there was this almost like I was given or activated this sense of capability. Mm. I was like, not only can I do it, but I did it. It's like, oh, I feel different about myself now. I feel stronger. I feel more driven and like I can take on greater cha challenges because I have proof 
that I actually accomplished something. It was really validating in that way. All right, amazing. That's a feeling I think everybody should experience at least once in life, you know, just, uh, you know, really pushing yourself. Did you, f also, did you feel that, did that make you wanna, uh, cause you know, some people get complacent, some people they get motivated in the way of they say, oh, um, all my hard work paid off, I should keep working hard, was that your attitude? I can't recall that back then. Mm -hmm. I would say probably for my most latest accomplishment, that's exactly what happened. Okay. Latest one would be my book going number one uh, in my category on Amazon, bestseller. And when I saw that, I thought, I can't sit back. Right. This is an indication for me that all of this effort and energy and drive to give back is actually working and that I need to continue, not slow down. All right, right. Awesome motivating man you I'm, I'm motivated right now just yep. listening to you uh okay so can you please let us know some of your goals just uh you know maybe some long-term goals you have right now some short-term goals yeah um my goal is to be able to be completely self-sustaining in this business by my 30th birthday or at least by the end of my 30th birth year um, and to not have to do any sort of other work, be able to support myself by serving others. That's a, a goal for sure. I've got some fitness goals. I'm looking to put on another 10 pounds of muscle. been working out pretty regularly over six months. So that's a, a goal of mine. Those two are probably the biggest ones. Awesome. Awesome. And we support you all the way. Uh, yeah, thanks. Uh, okay. Last three questions we have here. It's actually seven questions, by the way, people, I forgot I edited the list. So it's now seven questions, <laughs> but, uh, Okay, so how has your life experience affected the way you maneuver through life? In other words, uh, are there any experiences or moments in your life that stand out particularly as defining in who you are? Yeah, definitely, man. I would say that my life experience up to this point has solidified this path of service for me. And all the moments where I've been at my lowest and gone through suffering or had people in my life go through a great deal of pain and, and tragedy has cemented for me the necessity to make my life meaningful and to leave a legacy of, of service. You know, one moment in particular, um, about a year and a half ago, almost two years ago, I was homeless living in my truck in Canada and I had nowhere to go. I had no home. Um, I had a friend of mine who said, Oh yeah, you can come stay at my couch, but he's, you know, 150 miles away. So I had to drive and, and see him. But I remember sleeping in the back of my truck and it's raining and I'm just feeling low, man. You know, tears are there, heartbreaks there. And I said to myself, there is no way I'm ever doing this again. And, and that really just put the pin in that it said, everything I do from now on is going to ensure that this never happens again. All right, all right. And again, truly motivating, and uh, I'm sure people can relate to that, especially, um, you know, people in our community who are down on their luck, you know, and, um, you know, we're glad that you made it out of that. And to anybody who may be going through a situation similar to that, hopefully you can find some inspiration through Oak here, who is truly just proving that, you know, it doesn't matter how low you get, it's, it's really just the bounce back that matters. You know, you can go as far down as you know, rock bottom, but if you just rise twice as much, then, you know, just worry about the come up, the position that you're in, 
is always temporary. There's always room for improvement. And Oak here is a great example. So thank you for sharing that motivating story with us. And I'm sure people are going to find inspiration in that. So um, we're down to the last two questions here. Two of the most simple yet sometimes the most complicated questions, depending on uh, depending on your answer, really. But the first question is, Oak Mountain, what do you love? Hmm. I love being alive. That's for sure. Um, I love the opportunity to witness people growing, people healing. I love watching just love bloom in other people. That's something that really moves me, really opens my heart. Awesome. Awesome. And last question here, certainly not least. Uh, what are you afraid of? Mm. I would say one of my biggest fears is that I would die without the song of my soul being sung. Mm. That I would die without having left a genuine legacy of change and positivity in this world. That scares the crap out of me. Right. Very morbid thought, but at the end of the day, it's honest, you know, and it's very human as well. So um, it's motivating. It's motivating for sure. And uh, again, just to tie it all in, it's one of the reasons I think people develop language in the first place is that fear of being forgotten. Uh, whether mm -hmm. you want to call it an absolute theory or a broken theory, go ahead. But I'm just saying, I think that deep down, everybody has some desire to mean something to somebody. And when you live in a universe as extensive and endless, the seeming as ours does, then you have some some desire to leave at least as much influence as a, as you know the carbon atoms that created us, you know uh, something as minuscule as molecules that you can't even see can have such an you know incredible impact on on the world and we see it in everyday life. So uh, you know beautiful message there and um, you know hopefully oh you do get to sing the song of your soul and. Uh, you know, hopefully it's a good one. Hopefully it's something like a Jimi Hendrix song. Uh, but hey. yeah, but before, again, one last time, can you please let the people know where to get your book and uh, just give them a rundown and whatever they need to know about you. You bet. So if you're curious about my book or any of my other offerings, you can go to my website, which is thesmilinghuman, thesmilinghuman.com. If you go thesmilinghuman.com slash book, You'll have links to Amazon.com, Amazon.ca, or international shipping there. You'll see on my website the opportunity to partake in some of my free courses, which um, I'll be running at least in February. I don't know when this will go up, but there's uh, free options and paid options there. And I also have the opportunity to connect with me for one-on-one -on -one work if you're looking to improve and empower your own communication. In terms of social media, you can find me on YouTube and Instagram under The Smiling Human. I'm on Facebook as well under Oak Mountain. Awesome. And again, uh, we just want to congratulate Oak here for his, uh, again, number one selling book. And um, hopefully you guys check it out. All the information that uh, he's provided will be in the description. So you guys can go ahead, just one click, and you'll be there. Um, you know, check it out. Look at it. As he mentioned, there's some free stuff on there for you guys to go over. Uh, you know, just listen and uh, check it out. And you decide for yourself if it's something you want to invest in. But uh, I recommend at least, you know, giving it a listen and, and hearing some of Oak's ideas as you've heard today. And hopefully you guys are as fascinated and as 
uh, entertained by the conversation as I was. But yeah, everybody out there, one more time, go show Oats some love. And as always, be safe and peace. All right. <laughs>